0: Hey guys, what's up? It's Morgan, back with episode 2 of the Graveyard Garden Party podcast. I would like to apologize for the hiatus that happened right after uploading episode 1. Life took an unexpected turn, as it always does, and a lot came up that I had to deal with that sort of put the podcast to the side. But I am so excited to be back and producing another episode. I actually started this episode a long time ago, so you'll notice that in this recording here, My audio is going to be a lot more crisp and clear than in the episode itself. That is because I have learned a lot about the equipment that I am using between the time that I last uploaded and now. Which is good, because that means that the show is only going to get better from here. Thank you so much for your patience if you are a returning listener, and I hope that you really enjoy the episode. The state of Michigan is well known for its bustling college towns, its influence on the automotive industry, and for touching four of the Great Lakes. Lake Michigan alone hosts more than 1,600 miles of shoreline by itself. But did you know that Michigan is also the home of one famous American cryptid? Today we will be discussing the Michigan Dogman. Welcome to the realm of eternal spook season. Here, we mix together a delightful blend of true crime, chilling paranormal events, and everything in between for your entertainment. So go ahead and slip into your favorite set of Victorian-era pajamas to sit dramatically by the fireplace and enjoy a cup of tea. Delve with me into a few moments where time is stuck between the warm colors of fall and the chilling nights of winter. Only at the graveyard garden party. Episode 2, The Michigan Dogman Imagine that you're driving down the road, late at night. An expansive forest extends to your left and your right. It's been several hours since your last stop so you pull over for a moment to get out and stretch your legs. As you take in the cool night air, you enjoy the chirping of crickets and shake out your aching limbs. But then, you hear a noise in the distance. You begin to hear steps from within the forest. They're edging closer and closer and closer. Suddenly, The trees begin to rustle and shake on either side of you, and your blood runs cold as you realize that you are not alone. You race back to your car, hop inside, and slam the door shut while you kick it into drive, just in time to look over to your passenger side window and see it. Your view of the forest is blocked by a dark mass of matted fur creature stands on two legs and is taller than your car, but it stoops its head low to peer at you through the glass. You make eye contact with its long face, snarling teeth, and the clouds of hot breath that are slowly fogging up the glass. You snap out of the shock of what you're seeing and slam into the accelerator, leaving the creature in your rearview mirror, but you can't seem to drive fast enough. In the distance, you hear it again as it fades away. The unmistakable howl of a wolf that has just lost its prey. In 1887, Wexford County, Michigan, two lumberjacks that were working a small logging operation reported what would be the first-ever sighting of the canine cryptid known as the Dogman. Their description stated that the creature was around seven feet tall, standing on two legs, and had a wolf-like head with a humanoid torso. Over time, hundreds of sightings would come into play that lined up with this first account. Each one is generally similar in nature, The only feature that seems to change across accounts is the eye color. There are reports of the Dogman having blue, amber, or glowing eyes. An interesting piece of the Dogman's legend that sets it apart from other cryptids is the timing in which it supposedly emerges from hiding. It makes its appearances every 10 years on years ending in the number 7, beginning with the first sighting in 1887. This would mean that more sightings should begin in the year 2027, four years from the recording date of this episode. I was curious about the potential meaning of the number 7, and how it could pertain to this cycle of reappearances. If you know anything about the study of ancient numerology, you may be familiar with Pythagoras and how he began what some might call a cult surrounding the study of numbers. He believed that a combination of mathematics and mysticism could unlock the secrets of the universe. I did some research, and according to Pythagorean belief, the number 7 represents religion and spirituality, so 7 does seem to hold some potential relevant application to this cycle of appearance. However, what is even more interesting is that the number 10 was known as Pythagoras's favorite number, as it was considered perfect and holy for its mathematical balance. He believed that ten represented the path of all mortal beings within the universe. So for a creature to appear in years ending in seven, which is spirituality, every ten years, which represents its mortal path through existence, it is a rather interesting correlation. However, it is more likely just a simple coincidence, as Pythagoras' theory is a part of his own belief system and the Dogman has yet to be proven. In 1987, exactly 100 years after the first sighting by the lumber workers, a radio host named Steve Cook wrote, recorded, and broadcasted a song called The Legend of Dogman. It was all about the lore of the urban legend, and things that people had experienced over the years. It even references the two lumberjacks in Wexford County and their accounts, it was initially played on April Fool's as a joke for that day's broadcast. Although, in a turn of events, Steve was soon swarmed with calls explaining that what he would written about was real, and people were sharing their experiences. Thanks to Steve, the song has raised thousands of dollars that he put towards animal rescue and charities. Here's a small clip. Eleven lumberjacks near the Garland Swamp found an animal they thought was a dog. In a playful mood, they chased it around. Until it ran inside a hollow log. A logger named Johnson grabbed him a stick, poked around inside. Then the thing let out an unearthly scream and came out. And stood upright. If you have ever experienced a cryptid or had a paranormal encounter that you'd like to share, feel free to send me an email at Graveyardgardenpod at gmail.com, your story might make it onto the show. Nearly all reported encounters with the dogman check the same few boxes time and time again. Encounters are short, usually 10 to 20 seconds, or even less. The dogman stands about seven feet tall. Most of the time, it remains elusive and doesn't approach humans. However, I discovered a story from a Redditor submitted to the No Sleep subreddit that really caught my attention. He shares a couple of encounters that his grandfather had spoken about in his later years of life. Just a disclaimer, if the story at the beginning freaked you out, you may want to listen to this during the daytime, or with a friend, or with something silly playing in the background. I wrote that story at the beginning just to set the tone, but this is actually an alleged encounter that somebody had, and it will be displayed in the same manner with music and sound effects. But I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you love that stuff, and it's fun to get creeped out. So enjoy. These encounters were submitted to the No Sleep subreddit by user Ecology of Fear. It is titled. My grandfather had a few bizarre wildlife encounters in the forests of Michigan. Since it's starting to get colder in the upper Midwest, I decided that I would share some of my grandfather's stories. He told me about his time working as a forester in Michigan's Manistee National Forest. He never got a chance to write any of his experiences down, so I thought that I might post them here. For some background, my grandpa started working in the Manistee area in 1949 when he was 28 years old. Before then, he had been drifting around the region, doing odd jobs in logging until he was hired by the Forest Service in the northwest part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. The work, as I understand, was slow and most days he and his crew were sent to different parts of the forest to address various tree and land concerns. Grandpa was always an avid outdoorsman, and he enjoyed hunting and fishing just about as much as anyone in the region. Sadly, he died in December of 1998, when I was still rather young, but I remember whenever we went to visit him and Grandma, he would sit my brother and me down and tell us about his days in the Forest Service. Working outside every day allowed him to witness all sorts of wildlife, like black bear, whitetail, fox... And even Bobcat back in those days. He often relived his encounters with bears while he was deep in the forest, telling us that those moments were some of the most memorable of his life, being up close to such beautiful and powerful animals. Usually his tales were exciting, and the enthusiasm with which he told them inspired us to go out to the backyard and look for animals in between the pines. Although there wasn't much wildlife around Grandma and Grandpa's property, They still always kept a close eye on us, and never let us wander too far from the house. Finally, a few years before his death, Grandpa deemed my brother and me old enough to be told why. It was the mid-fifties, and October had rolled in behind cool autumn breezes and the sound of Canada geese flying southward. The first of his strange stories had occurred at night as he was driving home from a local bar where he and his crew had spent the last few hours after work. It was a windy night, and the pines on either side of the road were blowing ferociously. No moon or stars could be seen through thick cloud cover, so the only illumination of the road ahead came from Grandpa's headlights. By his reckoning, he must have been going close to 50 miles per hour at the very moment when something huge leapt across the road not 20 feet ahead of him. His headlights had shown the animal's silhouette. It was dog-shaped, but massive, almost stretching all the way across the road. It only made one bound to get from one side to the other, and its size alone was enough to unnerve Grandpa. At the time, he had assumed that the animal was just a very large wolf, except timber wolves hadn't been spotted in that region for decades. He considered it a bizarre encounter, but nothing came of it that night and he was able to return home without anything else strange happening to him. The second of his stories admittedly frightened me enough to avoid going outside at night for years. Even now, I'm wary of noises in the dark because of the obvious fear in Grandpa's voice when he told us of his second experience. Some details here were provided by my dad. It occurred in the same month as his first encounter, a few weeks later on a night that was pretty cold for the season. It maybe hit 40 degrees, but it was a calm night with little wind. Grandpa's house at the time was really small and it stood in a lot with about six other similarly-sized and built edifices. None of his neighbors tended to stay up very late, so it surprised him to be awakened by loud noises at about one in the morning. They sounded like scratching on sheet metal, with occasional thumps and bumps like an animal was trying to get in. Grandpa got up, fetched a flashlight, put on his boots, and went out into the front room the walls of which consisted of mosquito screens stretched between wooden framework. Once in the front room, Grandpa could hear the sounds more clearly, and they were coming from the nearest of his neighbor's homes, maybe 50 yards to his right. It was incredibly dark out there, with no lights to illuminate. The neighbor's house had a porch light on, but Grandpa couldn't make out what was creating the racket through the screen so he slowly opened the front door and looked out. He described to us in great detail the animals that he saw there, and he always said he would remember them exactly as they were, for fear brands memories the strongest. Three massive dogs, covered in long black hair, were up against his neighbor's house, scratching at the siding and making visible claw marks with every swipe. Each beast stood about seven feet tall, with their front legs stretching for another two or three feet and easily reaching the roofing and the gutter of the house. Their scratching, however, did not make it seem like they were trying to get into the house, as Grandpa explained. He thought that they were doing that to get whoever was inside, out. The next part was actually the hardest to get out of Grandpa. It was strange that he was so eager to tell us everything thus far, despite how he felt about the subject, but he was rather hesitant as I remembered to divulge the last horrifying details of his encounter. He claims that the animals then noticed that he had emerged from his own house just across the lawn, for each one turned to look straight at him just fifty yards away. They had pointed ears like a wolf's and huge bodies that rivaled large black bears in size. They also supported themselves, not with four legs like any other native mammal, but instead they stood on two legs each, towering seven feet above the ground. The sounds that they proceeded to make, Grandpa had said, would haunt his dreams for the rest of his life. It was a shame that he could neither produce recordings nor accurately mimic the so unwolf like screams the animals made. For that detail, always fascinated me most about his story. They didn't sound like foxes, coyotes, or bobcats. Instead, they forced half-scream, half-howls out of their jaws that Grandpa was sure held the teeth of a carnivore. Grandpa never told us exactly what happened next. I guess we assumed that he ran inside, locked the doors, and didn't look outside until morning. He would tell us that four of his neighbors, including the elderly couple that lived in the nearest house, didn't stick around very long. He did say that he tried to talk to them about what had happened that night, but they remained evasive and never gave him any straight answers. That turned out to be somewhat ironic, because Grandpa himself kept tight-lipped about many of the details of his stories. He would say that he heard those exact screams on two other occasions, both times while he was in the Manistee Forest and he showed us an old Forest Service report detailing a possible timber wolf sighting in the area, complete with photographs of huge padded paw prints in mud. The thing is, Grandpa never told anyone his stories but his most trusted family, which is unique among Michigan dogman witnesses. After the craze that Steve Cook's legend song stirred in the 80s, it's no wonder that so many stories from the region surfaced. I had heard a few bits and pieces about the so-called monster before Grandpa told his tale, but it wasn't until later in life that I realized his encounters had to have been with the same creature. Whether I believed him, that massive wolves walk upright through Michigan forests, well I'm still not so sure. But as a modern zoological curiosity, the stories of strange beasts from a passionate woodsman who knew his wildlife certainly remain strong and the most remarkable I've ever heard simply because of the genuine emotion in which he related his tales. Legends like these might just be figments of our collective imagination, so all I can do is present what I've heard, and let others judge for themselves what is real and what is pure fiction. Anyway, as the song goes, don't go out at night. If you've made it this far, to the end of the podcast, I would like to extend a very warm thank you. Between the time that I began this episode and the time that I actually finished it, I have resolved a lot of audio issues with noise being in the background, so the quality should only be going up from here. My rate of upload should also be a lot higher. I know that there was a very large gap between episode one and episode two. And that's just because I have been dealing with working on my Etsy shop and getting a different job. So I really appreciate your patience and I hope that you enjoyed the episode. The Graveyard Garden Party podcast is written, produced, and composed by Morgan McCormick. A small selection of the music and all of the sound effects are sourced from Epidemic Sound. Of course, I have to mention that a portion of this podcast is produced by my editing assistant, Winnie. She is a Shetland sheepdog that will stop talking to me if I don't give her credit. Consider signing up for our Patreon so that I can give her extra treats for all of her hard work. That's the end of the episode. hope that everybody has a great day and stay spooky.